This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to PediaPod for April 2022. This month, an integrated analysis of microRNA-messenger-RNA interaction in pediatric dilated cardiomyopathy. Dilated cardiomyopathy, or DCM, is a rare but serious condition of children and often progresses to heart failure. The outcomes for children with DCM are poor with 50% of paediatric patients dying or needing a heart transplant within five years of diagnosis. Whilst more is known about the etiology of adult DCM, the paediatric disease is more idiopathic and enjoys no effective therapeutics. In this episode, we meet Carmen Sukarov, a professor at the University of Colorado, Anschutz campus, and the director of the Paediatric Cardiology Research Laboratories. She and her team have been studying the regulation of microRNAs and their putative target genes in the paediatric DCM heart that may contribute to the distinctive phenotype of this disease in children. Here she is. So in dilated cardiomyopathy, pediatric or adult, the heart muscle becomes thin and can't efficiently pump blood to the circulation. So the heart cannot meet the needs of the body. How common and how serious is it for children? It's serious but it's uncommon. In adults, it's about one in a hundred adults have heart failure. In children, dilated cardiomyopathy is about one in a hundred thousand children. And worldwide, there's about a hundred thousand children with dilated cardiomyopathy. So in adults, the incidence is about one in a hundred and children is one in a hundred thousand. When we think of dilated cardiomyopathy and heart failure, we think of older adults although it can affect younger adults, but it's common in the older population. In kids, that progression to disease can be very fast, and about 40% of the kids may either need transplant or they may die two years after diagnosis. So although it's rare, when it's diagnosed, the progression can be very fast. So what are the current therapies used to treat DCM? That's part of the problem there are no therapies with strong evidence that they work. So this is different than the adult population. There have been multiple clinical trials in adults with dilated cardiomyopathy or heart failure. So in adults, the most common cause is ischemic heart disease or heart attack. But there have been multiple, multiple trials in the adult population. And that is because the numbers are higher. And because clinical trials are led by drug companies, that's how it is. Governments don't have the money to lead clinical trials. 
Because of that, kids have been treated like adults. So there has been an assumption that if this drug works for adults, it's going to work for kids. So there hasn't been a lot of trials that have looked at the effect of a drug in the pediatric population. And in terms of the biological causes of DCM, is it fair to say that we have a better handle on the adult situation because they've got a, you know, a lifetime of medical histories and we can tell where it's maybe coming from, but that's not the case for children. It's much more elusive. So that's an interesting question. If we look just at dilated cardiomyopathy in adults, recently, in the last few years, people that work with genetic causes of disease have been able to show that several cases of dilated cardiomyopathy in adults are due to mutations in this one protein called Titan. In kids, Titan mutations don't seem to be a major player in developing the disease. Mutations still play a role. There are familial cases. Pediatric dilated cardiomyopathy can also be due to viral infection. So myocarditis can be a cause of dilated cardiomyopathy. But the majority of the cases in kids is still idiopathic. So we don't know the causes. You've done some previous work, haven't you, looking specifically at microRNA expression. Can you just tell us briefly about that previous work and what it told you? Sure. We have a pretty big tissue bank at the University of Colorado. So this was started in the 80s. Every time there's a transplant, we have a team of people that go into the operating room. They collect that heart and they bring that heart back to the lab. So we have over 1,200 adult hearts in our tissue bank and over 400 pediatric hearts. Those include also control hearts, so hearts of people that have died and their hearts could not be used for a transplant for whatever reason. So we can compare what is happening in a disease heart to what's happening in a control heart. What changes in the kids in terms of levels of proteins, levels of RNAs, they are unique to the pediatric population. Specific to microRNAs, we were the first group that published changes in microRNA levels in the adult population both in the dilated cardiomyopathy population and the ischemic population. And that, I think, was about 15 years ago. And then subsequent to that, we did the same study in kids, and we wanted to evaluate if microRNAs were changing in kids and adults. We first did an array-based study, and array-based studies are much more limited than RNA-seq. And then this last publication was with RNA-seq, which allowed us to look at many more processes than just the array-based ones. So how exactly do you study the differential expression of microRNAs in these children? So the way that we do this is we get a small piece of that heart tissue, and then you extract the total RNA from that tissue. And then once you have the total RNA, there are different methodologies that allow us to study the expression level of the microRNAs. One of them is array-based. So there are seven little wells and there are probes that are in there. And you only detect the microRNAs that are in the chip. RNA-seq is different than that. What you're doing is that you are truly sequencing the RNA that is in that tissue. So by doing that, you are detecting all microRNAs that are present. You're not limited just to the ones that are present in the chip. 
And then you confirm the findings through RT-PCR. So RT-PCR um, allows you to, and that's a very, very targeted approach. You choose one microRNA that you found in your study to be interesting. And because RNA-seq technologies are expensive, I think in our study, we did 10 controls for the RNA-seq and 20 for the dilated cardiomyopathy patients. For the PCR, because it's a very targeted approach and we can choose which microRNAs we are interested in from the RNA-seq data, we can then expand the number of patients that we are looking at to confirm the RNA-seq data. How do you choose the most interesting differentially expressed microRNAs? So the first thing we did was we did a cutoff and we looked at the top 100 most expressed microRNAs in terms of microRNA numbers. And that is an added advantage of the RNA-seq data. You cannot get that from the arrays, but you can get that from RNA-seq. So you know how many copies are there of each microRNA, and we just chose the top 100 of the ones that were most expressed. From that top 100, we looked at the ones that were significantly dysregulated between disease and control. How do you then, how do you go from these selected interesting microRNAs to perhaps what they're doing, what their target genes are, and, and then what pathways might be disrupted? Yeah, so we had also done an mRNA sequencing work. So the same hearts we had done mRNA seq in the past. So what we were able to do is we used the same tissue, same hearts that we had microRNA sequencing and the ones that we had mRNA sequencing. And there are softwares that can predict the pairs, microRNA, mRNA pairs, based on the sequence of the mRNAs. So we use that software to narrow down which mRNAs would be targeted by those top microRNAs. And then we looked at our mRNA sequencing data set to see if that gene A was dysregulated in the pediatric heart. So we were able to really narrow down which mRNA microRNA pairs were there in the pediatric heart. Of course, this is all predicted. To prove that that's the case takes years of study. Yeah, so how do you go from that predictive microRNA mRNA pairing to actually figuring out if they are having an effect in the pediatric DCM heart? So what we try to do in our approach is to go from the characteristics of the heart itself, so the phenotypic characteristics of those hearts, to try to understand what these pathways are telling us. For example, different than adults, pediatric patients don't have an increase in cell size, so myocyte hypertrophy. The myocytes, when they are stressed, they don't divide anymore. They're terminally differentiated, so they get bigger. That's very common, and in adults, it's very common. We had shown in the past that myocyte hypertrophy is not a characteristic of the pediatric heart, so their hearts don't get bigger. Fibrosis is also very minimal in the pediatric heart, which is different than the adult population. Uh, others have shown that inflammation seems to be suppressed. So we can look at those as pathways of interest because we are seeing those differences. So we do see uh, hypertrophy signaling, we see pathways related to inflammatory responses. So that is what makes the whole story interesting is that we are seeing characteristics of the heart that are then being seen at the level of these microRNAs and mRNAs. How could you use that information then to 
create drug therapies that are specifically targeted to that pediatric population? So if hypertrophy is not a major player in the disease or if inflammation is not a major player, we shouldn't be targeting those processes. So one of the things we are doing right now is that we are pursuing one of these microRNAs to understand the biological consequences of those microRNAs. And we have an interest in the lab on mitochondrial function. So another thing we can do is when we get those fresh hearts is that we can study the mitochondrial function from those fresh hearts. One of these microRNAs seem to impair mitochondrial function. So we know that the pediatric hearts have mitochondrial dysfunction. And now we know that one of these microRNAs negatively affects mitochondrial function. So we are pursuing that. So that's the next step is out of all those microRNAs that we are seeing dysregulated in kids, what are the biological processes that they are affecting? So we are doing these studies now in an animal model, in a cell culture model. So we use primary cardiomyocytes from rats and in a human IPS cardiomyocyte model. So we're using all three to try to understand the effect of this microRNA. It sounds like you've got several years of functional studies ahead of you. Yeah, that's the problem. We have several years of, yes, functional study always. Um, we are very interested in circulating microRNAs and their effect on the cells. So we are finishing some analysis now of, I didn't talk about this, but kids can recover from heart failure. And we are finding that circulating microRNAs can tell us even though these kids all have heart disease in acute setting, so they all come into the hospital, they, it's an acute heart failure. At that time point, the circulating microRNAs, the ones in the serum, can predict which ones are going to recover from heart failure and which ones are going to need to be transplanted. Great. Well, we look forward to more pediatric research submissions, I suppose. Okay. <laughs> That was Professor Carmen Sukarov from the University of Colorado. And that's the end of this month's Pediapod. Please join us again next month. I'm Jeff Marsh, and thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.